Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of Tennis with an Accent. Uh, joining me tonight is um, our actually two guests, Mert Artunga, uh, coming back to the podcast after Wimbledon, and Omar Rauji, who was here reviewing, it seems like a long time ago now, Australian Open back in February. Welcome, guys, and thanks for doing this. Uh, I know we are all in different time zones. Thanks for managing this. No problem. Thanks for having us. No problem. Glad, glad to be here, Sakim. So yeah, Omar, you definitely have quite the following on Twitter for hockey before we were recording. We started recording, we were talking about that, but you also have a very passionate you know, drive as you cover tennis. And you, we met last year at the Rogers Cup in Montreal, and this year you were in the Toronto edition of the tournament. So I know it's four days removed, but it was a great tournament. Nadal Sitsipas played the final. So if you look back and if you want to summarize how, how, how do you look back at that, that week? What transpired there? Well, um, yeah, first of all, I mean, it was an amazing week. I, I had a ton of fun covering the tennis. Um, Toronto was a completely different venue. So it's, it's, it was like going to a completely different tournament. Uh, even though it's still the Canadian and it's still the, the Rogers Cup, it was like being in a completely different place. And I mean, it wasn't a different place. Um, the setup was, was, uh, unique and, very fan friendly. Um, I think Montreal's a bit, you get more contact with the players in Montreal in terms of the way the, the players walk out from where the dressing room is, uh, out in the open through that, that corridor where they can all get autographs and then, then they walk into the center court. Um, so that's, that's something that's very nice in Montreal that you don't get in Toronto because, um, their locker rooms are in the same building, uh, as the, the center court. But, um, I think also the fact that um, Nadal went to the final was a, a great thing for the tournament and for everyone following. Um, and and honestly, he was just he was just hands down the best from start to finish. And it was it was amazing to watch him do his thing. You know, like he's just you could just tell he was a dominant player from start to finish. And when things weren't going his way, he made those adjustments and he he. he he did what he had to do to to win that tournament, and it was it was an amazing thing to watch. Sure. So let's uh, stick with Nadal for a couple more minutes. Uh, he he's won now the Rogers Cup for four times. Uh, he won the Toronto edition, I believe, in two thousand eight. And after a decade, he looked pretty darn good. And you know he's uh, as good a bet at the U.S. Open. So you did get to speak with him. Uh, what is about the man? You know, like I know you've spoken to him in Montreal last year. Uh, what are some of the memories that stayed with you uh, covering this uh, player and, uh, you know, how, how candid he gets with the press? I know English is not his preferred language, but he does a pretty good job explaining how he's feeling. So what are some of the Nadal moments that uh, you will take away from the press room this year? Yeah, he does an excellent job of explaining and he's very patient with the with the questions usually. Um I wanted to talk about some things that, that I didn't write too much about yet. I didn't have a chance to. One thing that stuck out to me was, was I asked him a question because it was, it was in my head. Um, when he lost to Marin Cilic at the Australian Open, uh, it was because of an injury. He was doing, you know, they were quite even in that match and it looked like the momentum was with Nadal when he had that injury. Um, and, and I, I, I felt, and also I saw Matt tweeting about it, Matt Zemeck uh, tweeting about it during the tournament, that when he had that huge celebration after beating Chilich, we both thought that, you know, that loss and that injury at the Australian Open, the last time they played against each other, must be on his mind right now. And that's why this means so much to him. 
So I asked him about that. You know, was that in your mind? Is that why you had that celebration? And he says, no, no, definitely not. I don't care about revenge. I don't think about revenge. This is an important tournament to me. And this, like, uh, making the final here is what mattered. And that's why I celebrated like that. And it just, it really blows me away. Um, just his mindset and, and I mean, this is a guy who's obsessed with winning, right? Like he is, he is maybe the most competitive person we've ever seen in, in maybe all of sports. We know in tennis, he's definitely one of the greatest competitors ever. And so winning means everything to him. Yet, Yet, it's not like it would be for the rest of us where if we had some bad beat from months ago and we were facing that person again, you would want to get the better of him the next time. And that would be sticking in your head and you would say, I'm going to get him this time. Not Nadal. Uh, he's, he's solely focused on this. He's almost happy that Chilich has done well in the past. Happy for him. And he's only focused on himself. And, and the other thing that, that popped to my mind when he said that is how he always when, when asked, are you thinking about 17 Grand Slams? Are you thinking about getting to 20? Are you thinking about topping Federer's total? And he always answers, nope, I'm not, I don't think about that stuff. I know other people think about it, but for me, it, it means nothing. I just think about my career now and trying to win, and that's all I care about. And I always think, I always think to myself, yeah, right, come on. He's, he's definitely obsessed with trying to get to the top and being the best ever. I mean, he's obsessed with winning, but maybe he's actually speaking the truth when he says that. And it, it really is just about competing and just about being the best in every day rather than having that total next to his name and the goat and all that, all these other things that we will toss around. Definitely, Mert. So let's bring you in for this. Uh, it's a pretty interesting observation that Omar shared uh, from the press, uh, press room in Toronto. Uh, you've been in many press rooms uh, before where Rafa has spoken or even Roger and some of these big names. So what's your take on this? Uh, this is a pretty interesting point that Omar brings in that, you know, a lot of players, not Nadal uh, alone, a lot of players say that they're not looking for revenge. It's just about living in the moment. Roddick once said, it's not revenge, it's business. So when players are saying this, this, this is something, I think Omar raised a good point here. This is something you think we fans and media are sometimes more obsessed with, you know, the head-to-heads. Or you think a guy like Nadal is very aware of what happened in Australia, but he still has a job to do, and he's a professional, and he'll just you know stay focused on the task ahead. How do you view that uh, that whole thing of revenge? Not Nadal for like many players. Does that feeling exist? Yeah. For, first of all, I completely agree with um, with Omar on uh, Nadal's uh, candidness and usually the depth that uh, he goes to when when answering questions. I for years I've been listening to him. Uh, and asking him questions at Roland Garros and other places. And at Roland Garros, you have a translator too. So what? So in the past, when his English wasn't that good, and then they moved on to Spanish uh, questions as he's uh, as he answers them because it's his native language. He would he would answer them a lot more um, with a lot more elaborate wording. And then and I would and I would be able to listen to the translation to instant translation. And 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 they do a great job of that in uh, at Roland Garros. And uh, he always offers very deep, um, almost philosophical point of views. He talks a lot about passion and, uh, and his love for the game and, and how that carries him in the, in the most difficult moments. And, uh, and a lot of it, um, and I don't think this is just unique to Nadal. You know, the elite players on our sports are, are, are very um, fascinating to listen to. And, and Nadal is certainly one of them. And, uh, and I, uh, I, I don't quite buy 100% into 
into that type of talk where players claim that they don't uh, think about numbers or they don't think about revenge. I, I do think they think about it more, but I completely understand why they would not sit there and answer in front of 50 journalists that, yes, they care about revenge. Yes, they want to pass such and such players in this record. Or yes, they want to get. I mean, I, I don't. I don't think any player will do that. Not, and and you should, and nobody should hold it against Nadal that uh, that perhaps he does think about revenge, but he just simply says that he doesn't. Yeah, I think that's something the underlying tone of the tour as well, because Nadal supposedly a gentleman. We all know that, and Chilich is supposedly a very nice guy. So I think strictly business and court, they want to beat each other, but they are not gonna. They're too professional to come out and say. But again, uh, like Omar said, Rafa does come across. Pretty, you know, sincere and an honest guy, like you know, who's just saying what he's thinking. Uh, so let's turn the chapter to Novak Djokovic, Omar. You also got a chance to speak with him. What are some of uh, the interactions with you and the other press uh, members that Novak had in Toronto? And uh... yeah, I think the thing that stuck out to me that that is lasting in my head from Novak Djokovic is I I was asking him. What is the most important thing to you? Um, what What is your goal now? Are you trying to get back to number one? Is it about majors? Is it about ATP titles? And he, like the first thing that came out of his mouth was the majors. And he said, it's the majors. That's what's most important to me and a lot of the players. Um, and then he talked about the ATP, the, the Masters 1000 titles. And there was no mention of getting back to number one. So that really does stick with me because I'm I'm just wondering how how important that is going to be for him going forward. And I'm also, you know, very curious to see if he is he is thinking about getting back to that form where he was just this dominant player who dominated, you know, months and months of, of tennis, or is he more kind of thinking uh, to be more like Roger Federer now and and show up for the majors and maybe be dominant be a dominant player there, like he was at Wimbledon. But I mean, he wasn't that amazing in Toronto last week. Um, and so, you know, th- I, I wonder where his mindset is at, you know, because after he competed the career Grand Slam, um, there was an observation out there. And I, I think it's it's true that he just he kind of lost his uh, the real the real burning passion and the drive for a bit. Um, and obviously he has it back now, but. But how much is he? Is he going to be able to put in all his time and effort into tennis again and and dominate the sport like he was before, or is he splitting time with his family and is he thinking about only majors? If you if you get where I'm coming from, yeah, definitely. Uh, look, uh, when he won Wimbledon, you know he he came in the tournament as one of the few favorites, but then he really you know uh, surprised you know any detractors that he had to win the biggest tournament when you haven't won something. And, of course, he, he was fighting his own demons. And he himself said that, you know, you never know if his level was better than before or because this win has its own obstacles. So, yeah, I mean, he's someone who's no stranger to win these tournaments. And that's why I think uh, sometime Vegas and all the, I think, Ladbrokes and all the bookmakers, I was checking something today on ESPN. And Djokovic is the odds-on favorite to, uh, you know, to win U.S. Open. I mean, it's a close battle between him, Rafa, and then followed by Federer and Zverev. But yeah, definitely, they sometimes know something that uh, sometimes, because they do it for a living. And yeah, it'll be very interesting to see. So let me ask you, Murd, one question here. I know it's kind of, uh, you didn't follow much of the Toronto event, but in general, Djokovic is such a clean striker of the ball and such a complete hardcore player. So what is the most surprising stat here? Djokovic not able to win Cincinnati or Federer not able to win in Montreal? 
I mean, and Djokovic probably has more looks. He's still actively playing Cincinnati. He's in the draw. Could win it this year, but, you know, we won't know the result right now. That's, yeah, yeah. no, no that's, that's a great question, and I don't really have a, a precise answer. In my opinion, there are five or six the uh, great oddities in men's tennis and one or, and two of them are probably these that you just mentioned you know that uh, that Federer has never won in Montreal and uh, and Djokovic has never won in Cincinnati I, I if we were to really if we were to you know transport ourselves back 10 years and replay all those tournaments I'm I'm willing to bet they would at least one win one each it's, it's just uh it's just hard to explain how Djokovic has not been able to win Cincinnati or, or Federer has, you know, the, the, but there are some oddities like that. And, and I am glad there are because um, otherwise we would be able to explain everything away. I mean, another one to another one that's, that's a huge oddity is, is Federer not winning us open since 2008. That's it's been 10 years now. And he wanted five years in a row before that, you know, it's just these types of oddities, I believe are, are hard to explain. I, I don't really have any, uh, any theory that, that would make sense after I've said it to myself. And, you know, I'll just add in a historical tidbit there. I remember clearly as a 15-year-old or 14-year-old uh, buying a tennis magazine in India. Becker had won his third Wimbledon in the span of like uh, five years. And the article said something at 21. He's a three-time Wimbledon champion. How many more? And he never won again. <laughs> so <laughs> that's one of the oddities that has stayed with me. I always wonder because I was a huge <laughs> Becker fan growing up. And at 21, the guy had three Wimbledons. People didn't start winning till 22. You know, unless your name is Nadal or, you know, like some of the phenoms and he never won again. So, yeah, so we never know how sport and how life, you know, takes a turn. Of course, Pete Sampras and Edberg were the reasons. And for Federer and Djokovic, they both have the reason because they both have canceled each other out in Montreal and Cincinnati finals. So that's how it goes. So let's uh, bring Omar back into the conversation here and more Toronto Masters. So Stefano Sitsipas, Omar, I don't know if you follow the podcast, I... Uh, it got the chance to interview him when he was still a relatively, relatively unknown teenager. Of course, he was known in tennis circles as a, someone who had a glorious backhand and was one of the first, uh, you know, potential uh, players from Greek who could do big things. But now he's definitely a household name. He's earned his way. So what were your interactions with him and how... I, I got the impression he's really friendly for media and he has great personality and uh, great perspective. So did you get a chance to speak with him? Yeah, I mean, not one-on-one, but I was at all the press conferences and, um, and I'm sure you got it from your interactions with him that he is, he is a very friendly and nice guy and he will, he will answer, uh, every question with a well thought out, long, uh, thoughtful answer. And he's, and he's a very thoughtful, nice person. And I mean, we, I think everyone thoroughly enjoyed their, uh, their interactions with him. And Zwerer was there, right, I believe. Uh, and he had this match against the Sitsi Pass. And Zwerer was someone who's building this reputation. And I found him, you know, not brash, but I think that's a youthful arrogance. Like, I know it uh, all kind of, and which is good, because, you know, a lot of players in the past, like Becker, even Isevich, had that. And there's nothing wrong. And uh, Twitter, tennis, tennis Twitter was kind of divided when Zwerer gave his uh, explanation after the loss to Sitsi Pass, saying, Sitsipas has played better in the past, but today it was, you know, Zverev's level, it was bad, and that, that was the reason. Uh, and you, I believe, tweeted that. So what was the response in the press room? Uh, was there a follow-up question? Well, you're saying that, that tennis Twitter was divided, but the thing is, when if you were there, 
there was no doubt he was being very rude and dismissive of what Sitsipas had just done. And it was obviously he was being a sore loser about it. Um, you know, he's asked, how did you think Sitsipas played? He said it was an atrocious match. He didn't play that well. Uh, it was clear as day that he was he was obviously sour from losing and he wasn't willing to give his opponent credit. And then, you know, that wasn't all that happened in that press conference. Um, he was... Uh, he was asked another question. I forget what it was. Um, something about, oh yeah, it was, how do you feel about defending this, this, um, this title that you won last year in a completely different city? Is that, is that strange for you? And what he's, what he replied was, I answered this question already. Get, you can get the records from the ATV. I'm sure ATP. I'm sure. And it was just so, it was so rude and dismissive. And, you know, everyone in the, in the room was just kind of, you know, left kind of shaking their head or, you know, thinking, oh, this guy is just, you know, just not, not very polite. And he doesn't have to answer things that way because look, we're not there for every single press conference. We, we cover one tournament. Um, you know, a lot of the people cover one tournament a year. A lot of the people can't make it to every single press conference just for you, Alex Zverev, um, you know, and, and, you know, if you're, Novak Djokovic or Nadal or something, you're answering the same questions almost every week, right? I mean, Kevin Anderson, how many times has he answered the question about how have you achieved this success in your 30s? He he answers it probably five times a tournament at least. And he just sits there and happily answers the questions. And that's kind of what, what you have to do as a tennis player. So that, that attitude was a bit much from him. No, no I'm definitely not... Uh going on a limb here to defend Zverev. I mean, I've said that before, but he's definitely grown into it. And when he wins matches, he's definitely a delight, but he can work on some of those. But as far as tennis Twitter being divided, a lot of people, no one was defending his behavior. What I read, people were, were saying, but after this kind of a match, he has only himself to blame. And he didn't even, he missed out on a challenge. I think the game he lost, if he had challenged, that game could have gone to deuce. So again, you know, it was like some poor judgment on his part. So Mert, again, uh, you've, you've been a player yourself, so... Uh, just not to be devil's advocate. So when some guy is not giving press, you know, the kind of uh, response you're looking, but let's face it, you've just lost a match. It's not the easiest thing to come and answer and talk about that match. Federer and, you know, Sampras, a lot of these big names who are supposedly very nice have had some moments when, you know, they were not as objective and that's life, you know. So what's your take on Zverev and is it, is it, part, of, it is part of the parcel? We're talking about like you know you'll have these kind of personalities. Well, when you when you're an up and coming tennis player, uh, such as uh, Zverev, although he's more in the uh, coming side than the upper than up and coming side, uh, he's further along than say Tsitsipas or or Shapovalov are. Uh, I think when you're an up and coming player like that, there are many areas that in which uh, you have to mature. You have to mature on the court, how you handle. Uh, collapses during matches or how you handle a referee making a bad call and part of being a professional tennis player is also how you handle post-match press conferences or 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 even uh, pre-match talks with the media or your relationships with the fan it's all a package and uh, not every player gets every element of this package um, together early in their career and Zverev fits into this uh, profile he doesn't have every every uh he has not matured in every single package that defines a tennis player, and uh, in his in his in his post match conference 
showed that. And yes, I agree. I mean, to say to say, well, first of all, you know, sometimes foreigners when they have to use uh, English words, you may, you give them the benefit of the doubt. But I think uh, Zverev knows very well what the word pathetic means. So I thought I thought that was that was over overboard. <laughs> And also the fact, uh, you know, the fact that he didn't want to answer some question because it's been asked before. I, I'm, I'm totally on Omar's camp on that one. Uh, players have to answer the same questions many times. Now, if if a question is a is a mundane or, or, or an idiotic question, for the lack of a better word, then it doesn't even have to be asked two or three times or four times. And a player just dismisses the questions. We would probably side with the player. But um, but uh, in this case, I think Zvera was was wrong. And and you, you can only hope that uh, as he matures, you know his his his, his on court handling of longer matches of of, uh, of of third sets crucial points have definitely gotten better. So he has matured in the, in that sense, and he's got still a bit a little bit more to go. But this is an area that the other one that we just talked about is an area where he has still uh, a few avenues to cross. All right, Mert. So let me ask you one more thing. You spoke about Zverev, I think earlier in the year, and then you maybe it was on Twitter. Uh, you said uh, his second serve, especially when he's down break point, is very predictable. So have you noticed any change from the coach's corner? Like if he's hitting that spot better, if he's really mixing it up, or he's still that predictable when he's down? No, I, th- I think it, st- it, it remains a problem. I, I'm a little bit... Um... Uh, I'm a little bit baffled that he doesn't do more variation with the second serve. I'd like to see him hit a bigger kick, for example, to the ad side than he does. He, he does have some kick on his on some of his second serves, but a tall guy like him with uh, with a good acceleration on his wrist uh, should be able to put more more kick on the ball and, and make the ball jump higher if necessary. He also doesn't use... Um, uh, he also he, he seems to have the same amount of spin on second serve a lot of times, and his placement doesn't vary that much. So this it, it, it does remain a problem, but that's not the only hole in his game that uh, that needs that needs to improve. I also feel that uh, his his wide forehand coverage is still a subpar compared to the rest of his baseline game. But I do appreciate the fact that he's looking to attack more, or or he's looking to to come to the net more when he gets a short ball. He, he uh, whereas in the past he would just try to go for a big, big, uh, big uh, bazooka shot and then just stay back and hope that it's a winner. So he he does look mm-hmm. to go to the net a little bit more. He's he could still do it even even further because when you when you do that, the goal is not necessarily to win that point, but the goal is to put the doubt in your opponent's mind that you are willing to come to the net. So they so they have to come up with a better shot in the future. But uh, yeah, he has a couple of holes in his game that uh, that he still has to fill. But he's definitely coming along. Let's circle back uh, with Omar one more time. Felix Auger Aliasim. Am I saying the name right first? And secondly, how good is this kid? I mean, we've been hearing about it. Mert seen him in Roland Garros at other tournaments. So Omar, I know, as a tennis journalist, you know, who does Rogers Cup in Canada, how excited are you that with uh, this combination of Shapovalov and Felix, you think tennis could be hitting front pages, you know, good old school newspaper style or on websites? Will this be the focal point in coming years? In Canada, it will be. Um, these guys are going to be doing things that no Canadian uh, singles men's tennis player has done before. Um, Milos did, Milos Raonic did make the Wimbledon final a couple of years ago and hit, uh, he got as high as number three in the world. So he was doing those kinds of things too. And those were um, big news in Canada. I think the way Felix and Dennis 
um, will do it. They'll do it with a bit more flair. Their personalities are more magnetic and people are really going to latch on to their tennis style because it's going to be more fun to watch than, than Milos has been. Um, you know, he, he does quick rallies, big serves and, and everything's done within three shots. Usually when it's a Milos rally, uh, Whereas these guys are going to have long buildups to points and and exciting winners and and you know we saw it with Dennis last year in Montreal that how, how electric it can be. Um, <clears throat> I think it's going to be very exciting for Canada in the upcoming years. Uh, two two young Canadians coming up who have a chance to go far. Uh, it's exciting. Um, so I wanted to go back to Sitsipas. There was. There was a couple of things I missed um, mentioning that that I noticed over there uh, in in Toronto. Um, one thing that that struck me was that when when we asked him how his relationship was with um, with with Alexander Zverev, he said it's not good, it's not bad, it's it's okay. And and then we kind of asked him like, how is your relationship with uh, the next gen players? And he said, yeah, it's fine. My relationship's fine with everyone. Um, but I, I do have good friends on tour. The thing is, most of them are older. And it, it kind of sounds like he may be um, just kind of a bit separate from the rest of the next-gen players because we know that Felix and Dennis are, are amazing friends. Um, I, I get the feeling that a lot of the other next-gen players are friends with each other and do talk. Um, I don't know, maybe Mert can shed some more light on that, but but it, it does feel like Steph, Stefanos is kind of a separate entity and he kind of plays by his own uh, tune. And, and that's interesting because, I mean, it's, it's just interesting to have a completely different personality with a different way of thinking about things. Um, so that, that struck me. And then let's go back to Felix just for a second. Um, you're asking about Felix and, and, what what was amazing to me is that um, we asked him. He 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 only won one match in Toronto, right? Uh, and then he lost in his next match. But that one match he did win. He was he was a, like very impressive. Just the shots from all over the court, the power he had, everything. He showed that his game is going to be a very complete game as soon as he brings consistency. Um, and in the match he lost, he lost in a third set tiebreaker. He was very close to winning. Um, and he was just missing by the smallest margins. Um, and what struck me was that when I I asked him after that first game, like, aren't you nervous? Weren't you nervous? You 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 broke, but then you were facing breakpoints in each of the next two service games on your own serve. And how come you you didn't crack under the pressure? And he goes, well, if I had lost that game, then I would have I would have lost that game. And then. Um, there are different ways to win a match. Like I would have just had to do something else to come back and win. And just that thought process of, of not, you know, not being overly nervous about, about that break point and just dealing with things as they come. It also struck me as a very Rafa like um, mindset of just taking things as they come, thinking about the next point, being able to dismiss what has just happened and really not feeling nerves. And that, you know, we know that the best tennis players, they don't get that that crazy nervous feeling when it when everything is on the line, or it, it doesn't seem like they do, anyways. No, that's very interesting information, especially with Zverev and Sitsipas. Uh, yeah, so that's pretty clear after the press conference. I'm sure 
whatever little friendship they have, it's, you know, it's not growing anytime soon. <laughs> uh, <laughs> yeah. There's a big news uh, today and we have to definitely discuss it. We don't have much time, but uh, Davis Cup changes have been passed finally by the ITF and it's going to be a World Cup kind of a tournament where 18 teams and a lot of changes. So, Mert, uh, I know we've spoken about this. A lot of players, especially, you know, Luca Pui, former players like Pat Cash, uh, Todd Woodbridge, and, uh, you know, you name it. And a lot of people are openly speaking about it. Uh, however, there are a few big names, supposedly, who are happy with these changes because they thought change is needed. Otherwise, this uh, this iconic competition, you know, wouldn't have survived. So someone who's captain the Turkish Davis Cup team, and Turkey is one of the smaller federations, how do you view this change? Now it's come to, you know, uh, full circle that in 2019 we'll have a new format with best of three and all these other changes. Uh, how are you looking back at this? What, what's what are the emotions right now? Well, I um, uh, I'm I'm, per, I'm personally uh, sad because I feel that the two two singles, one doubles, two singles over a weekend home and home uh, was a very um, exciting format. Uh, it was well attended in almost every country and. Uh, I'm not sure. Uh, you know, one of one of the things about the, the this new format is that uh, is that uh, we somehow believe that top we have, we're we're operating under the belief or the assumption that top players will not start playing Davis Cup, and I'm and I'm not sure about that. We will see. I don't think so. Uh, I don't think uh, you will all of a sudden get the, the 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 top players to to start playing Davis Cup because the format has changed. It was rather the timing of Davis Cup that uh, that uh, f- the reason for which uh, some of the top players passed on it. But the timing of uh, of this uh, Dave- of this format is not that great either. Uh, but but there is no doubt that there's something lost uh, in the essence of Davis Cup. I mean, my, the, the happiest memory of my life, or or let me put it this way, the happiest memory of my tennis life was the moment. Uh, the moment that I won the, the decisive fifth rubber for Turkey back oh, uh, back 28 years ago. There's no, there's, I've never felt such exhilaration in my life because I won the match point. I, I, I can still relive those, you know, 90 seconds or 100 seconds again. I, I won the, I won the match, and then, then the next minute was a blur. I remember lifting my hands up. I, I see 3,000 people getting up and lifting their hands. Some people running to the court, and the next thing I know, you know, it's, it's just uh, that that was the happiest, and probably one of the happiest memories of my life. Period, top five for sure. And uh, and I don't think you will have that kind of uh, uh, atmosphere when you play on a neutral side, and uh, and you play two singles and one doubles. It's just not going to have the same, um, you know, marathon feel to it that uh, that a three out of five set uh, weekend. Um, Davis Cup uh, tie felt like so I I do think that some of the essence is lost I I I don't know but I, I think Davis Cup should have stayed home and home and uh, and it gave and Davis Cup was never about having big names playing in it anyway there were plenty of Davis Cup ties yeah, yeah there were there were plenty of Davis Davis Cup ties three and big four it it was about nation versus nation because again I bring my own experience. My first live tennis was when I saw India play Korea in Davis Cup, and it was electric on, on the on New Delhi lawn, you know, like DLTA, it's called the DLTA Lawn Tennis Association on the grass course. It was electric. I've never seen 
a tennis match before live and it still stayed with me. Right. And probably there were probably not, uh, you know, it doesn't necessarily have to involve the, the elite players of the world. It's just, it's, it's the excitement of playing for your country or and supporting a team for your country. It's, it, it's actually, it, it, what's ironic is it's the furthest, it's the furthest thing from regular tennis competition as it can be. You know, the, the regular tennis competition that we, that we watch throughout the year is individualistic. Uh, it's a single player. We have uh, millions of single player fans who support their players. They don't have to be from the same country that they are from. But when it comes to Davis Cup, uh, it, 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 change, it changes. And, and it doesn't matter. The, the names don't really matter that much. You know, people, people go and support and watch. And it, in fact, one of, the, um, one of the great things about Davis Cup was the fact that sometimes you had lesser players stealing the limelight for a change and it became their um, their their fifteen fifteen seconds of fame, fame to, to, to so to speak, and uh, so I believe that this this correlation that people form between you know top players not playing Davis Cup and that being a bad thing versus just Davis Cup just what Davis Cup represents is um, is far fetched. No, definitely. Uh, in many cases, like you said, players in the past have thrown out the ranking with a partisan crown behind them. People have punched above their weight and knocked off, you know, the much decorated or highly seated player. And that was the beauty of the team concept. And then, you know, sometimes uh, Sampras, you know, and these guys winning on the road in Moscow. I mean, those are the memories that uh, people remember. Sampras beating Chesnikov on clay and, uh, and, and Becker winning uh, in Sweden on clay. I mean, those those are memories that, you know, that that's part of my you know tennis watching. Again, of course, it's defined by Wimbledon and U.S. Open as a fan. But Davis Cup had its special moments, and it's too bad. Like you know, a competition that iconic uh, has been totally you know sh- made like a f- you know this something you know for this. And again, again, they're using the new generation and you know five sets, and you know they lose the crowd and. I know this is an ongoing conversation. Maybe we can revisit this in detail with some other guests later on. But uh, I think we covered a lot today. Omar, before we uh, conclude, do you have any thoughts on Davis Cup? Yeah, I mean, I was following uh, what happened today. And um, are you getting echo right now? Okay, sorry. I am. Um, so, I, yeah, I was following. And um, just a quick thought is that I, I do think everything everything in life can be improved upon. Um, so hopefully, and it's very interesting to hear Mert talk about his personal experiences and how amazing his memories are about that Davis cup, because obviously that means a ton and yours too, Saqib, as a fan, your, your experiences are incredible and you, you enjoyed it so much. I'm sure there's, there's millions of people around the world who have amazing Davis cup memories. The thing is, it, it has, like, there has to be potential for more for it to be, um, a kind of uh, country versus country tournament that everyone engages in rather than just the people from the specific country. Because I know when it's Davis Cup and Canada's playing, I, I engage and people I know engage. But if it's two other countries, they're not usually overly um, paying attention. They don't know what's going on because it, it doesn't involve them. But when it comes to World Cup, if it's France playing Croatia, playing Croatia in the World Cup of Soccer, we all know, we're all watching, right? Whatever the match is. So there must be, I don't know if there is a way, but I'm hoping that there must be a way to engage everyone in, in all the matches of, of this country versus country 
uh, tennis tournament. So, and that is what really would grow the viewership and, and the tournament and, and everything. And I'm not sure if this is the way to do it, but maybe it is. So, so that's why I, I would, I would be kind of supportive. No, that's good, Omar. I mean, we always, you know, that's why the dialogue is good, you know, both perspectives and, uh, from, you know, from unique perspectives are, are welcome. And that's why, you know, we, we have this podcast. And hopefully for, for the cause now, since it's already set in stone for next year, hopefully crowds do show up and players do come in and uh, they can have a launching pad. But again, uh, we'll wait and see. Uh, any success won't be just judged upon how 2019 goes. It's, it's going to be seen over the course of five or ten year period if this was a successful move. And I'm sure we'll have plenty of opportunities to talk about this. Anyway, guys. It was as wonderful as always, insightful. A lot of, you know, Toronto sound bites were great. Thanks for doing this. And uh, yeah, we should do this again soon. Thanks. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.